the privilege that we each feel this morning certainly must be a great one to understand that wonderful obligation that's ours to worship and yet that it can be done in a way that is of great convenience for us and the power that we can rest in our mind to appreciate the wonder of God's Word and the direction that it provides truly in our lives moment by moment and day by day. As Brother Roger mentioned, the announcements, certainly how thankful we can be that we each have a measure of health to permit us to gather this morning, and that as we have done so in the encouragement of those that we've noted on that sick list, may we continue to pray about them and think wholesomely about them that in fact their health might be able to improve. This morning as we consider perhaps that lesson as you might have noticed entitled in the bulletin as well as the one that I've placed on the wall to my left, the grace of God and righteousness. It certainly would be no stretch of the imagination to say that subjects in terms of preaching with relation to the grace of God, one could preach probably for a year, never miss a single Sunday, and attack some aspect in glory, in wonder, and in depth of the grace of God. I thought today, though, rather than taking such an expansive consideration toward it, we would look at Paul's approach to it in the closing verses of Galatians 2. So I would ask that you turn there with me as we make a few introductory comments about not only the subject of God's grace, but the specific attack toward it that Paul takes in this text to us. The subject of God's grace. It is not also to be overlooked that it is a misunderstood subject, and tragically so, really, in our world, that some who look upon the subject of God's grace see in it what the Bible does not present it to be. That, in fact, can be eternally damning to those who proceed to follow in that course of belief. Paul, certainly in this particular section, pounds home the point of the greatness and the wonder of God's grace, and I thought some introductory thoughts relative to that would be in order. The word itself and the whole subject of that word particularly occurs 104 times in the Bible. You might note that 60 of them are found in the Old Testament. That leaves some 44 of them to appear in the New. And as one looks at that Greek word charis, C-H-A-R-I-S is how you and I would spell it in English, one sees in that a very dramatic thought and a powerful idea. Its first occurrence in all the Bible is in Genesis chapter 6. On that occasion, we might remember Noah and the deluge that was soon to overrun he as well as the family and others on earth, but God gave him some plans, some orders, some instructions, whereby he and those who would choose to follow could be saved from that deluge, who could in fact weather that storm by riding in an ark above it. It might be noted concerning that flood and concerning the other features relating to it, we can learn much about God's grace solely from a study of that point. Paul chooses to take a little bit of a different tactical approach to the subject here, primarily because of the misunderstanding of those to whom he was writing. What can we know about the Galatian individuals? What were some of the beliefs that were troubling them? And how did Paul address them in terms of an answer? First of all, it's safe to say that God's grace... It, at least in an indirect way, appears on every page of the Bible. It is a glorious wonder of His blessedness and His favor toward the human family. He sustains, He maintains, He offers the opportunity to enjoy fellowship with Him. As Paul would discuss in this particular text, the Old Testament did at least make some presentations about God's grace. 
But the fullness of it, the absolute completeness of it was not to be seen in the Old Testament. It was not to be appreciated. It was not to be thoroughly understood until the glory of the New Testament came to be. And then, in the glorious light of those 27 New Testament books, we, as though it was a lens out of focus, suddenly now we can see the preciousness of God's grace, clearly resolved, well put before us, able for us to appreciate. Paul tries to help the Galatians see that grace that clearly. I hope that you and I can do the same this morning. No doubt one of the thoughts that troubled those Galatians, for it occurs in all six chapters of this book, has to do with the comparison of the law of Moses to the presentation of the law of Jesus. Is it not possible, they would argue, that one could be righteous under the Old Testament? Couldn't one, in fact, appreciate God's grace and live rightly before Him in that way? Paul needs to address that. What about righteousness and what about the Old Testament? What about righteousness and the New Testament? The subject of today's lesson, the grace of God and righteousness. I believe we've already commented somewhat interestingly that the grace of God wasn't fully made known in all of its details in the Old Testament. Paul, in fact, identifies that in this text. Let's look at some of the first aspects of our lesson by trying to note not only the problem that God's grace addresses, but how that God's grace answers it. Here is the central problem in all the Bible. It began in really in Genesis chapters 2 and 3. On that occasion, we will remember that God had given a statement of command to Adam and to Eve. And in the statement of that command, it was very easily to understand, easily able to be appreciated. They were not to partake of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was that simple. Eve even noted in Genesis 3, beginning in verse 2, they were not to touch it. With those thoughts in mind, no wonder the verses that follow pose such a great difficulty. They did partake of it. And as such, they violated God's will. They transgressed His law. That by definition is set before us in 1 John 3 verse 4, isn't it? Whosoever sinneth transgresseth also the law. For sin is the transgression of the law, John would say. At this point, the critical matter now to be addressed, how can sinful, undone man appear just, holy, and righteous before the Almighty God of heaven? How could it be? God on the one hand is perfect and sinless. Man on the other hand is sinful and undone. How can they ever enjoy fellowship again? Beginning from that chapter forward, we have God's gracious presentation of His choice and His initiative to present an answer to that conundrum, to present a means of addressing that problem. Very simply and very powerfully might we notice, the law of Moses, of course, was one intervening matter in that answer. We noticed earlier, we didn't find the fullness of God's grace presented under the law of Moses. It was there in a veiled fashion, not complete, not full. What purpose did that law of Moses serve for you and me to appreciate today? Might we notice that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. 
thus just as Eve and just as Adam partook of the forbidden fruit and thus distanced themselves from God, you and I do the same when we sin. We drive a wedge between us and the Lord. We drive a chasm, if you please, between us and God. What about God's grace for us? How did God, God's grace work for those under the Moses institution? I've listed a very simple thought for you to consider. The Old Testament under the law of Moses showed a number of sacrifices that involved blood. The shedding of blood whereby ultimately there was some means by which they could appear more righteous before God than otherwise. Might we remember that the matter concerning sacrifices was a very pertinent part of the law of Moses. One of the things it was to teach the Jewish economy and the Jewish people was the importance of sacrifice. As we read books such as Leviticus and Numbers, we can't but be impressed with how often sacrifices were to be made. Think of all the things that could make a person ceremonially unclean. Certain types of issuances from the body, touching a particular corpse, those just a small, small sampling of what would make one unclean and thus demand a sacrifice in one way or another. If you and I lived under an economy like that, we would need to keep a fairly large flock at hand just so that we would have a sufficient number to offer as sacrifices when the rather often occurrences for that came we learned the importance of somehow addressing the problem of sin. The Jews knew it well. No wonder when we turn the page to the New Testament, we reach a new plateau in appreciating God's righteousness. We easily understand today, you and I don't need to keep a herd of goats and a herd of oxen and a herd of sheep out in the backyard just so that we can offer sacrifices for our sins. There's a better plan now. There's a different, different method, a better system. The grace of God, as we'll see in our lesson today, will in fact hone in on the power and the beauty of that wonder. Paul, in fact, addresses it here in Galatians 2. As we turn and look more clearly at these thoughts, there are a few truths that are absolutely basic, truths that are absolutely essential. Let's in fact notice these first and then we will be ready to appreciate Paul's answer. First of all, truths. Sin is still just as real as it ever was. We are not at liberty of saying, well, Adam and Eve were guilty. We are not. No person can make such a claim as that. Was it not true that Solomon affirmed that there's no man that sinneth not? Verse 46 of 1 Kings 8. And isn't it still the case that John stated, if any man say that he has no sin, he is a liar, and the truth is not in him. 1 John 1 verse 8. Thus, the first point to be noted, we today are not at liberty of merely saying, well, sin's a problem of the ancient past. Sin is no problem today. That takes on a whole new level of appreciation when we know there are people in our world who say that sin is just a topic for those fundamental Christian people. It's really just a figment of their imagination. Each person just needs to live a good life as nearly as he can. There's no such thing as what these people call a sin. First thing we might note, they're wrong on that point. 
Sin is still just as real and just as vital a topic as it ever was. But secondly, what about God's justice relative to this? There are also some who like to take the opinion and the approach that, well, even though there may be sin, God is a God of majestic and infinite love, and He will overlook that. He knows that I'm trying, and He knows that I have a right good intention in mind. And furthermore, when that final day of judgment arrives, He will welcome me in. Have you ever spoken with someone who really believes that? Who is of the thought that, well, God is merely too good, too loving, to in fact cast anyone into everlasting disfavor with Him. Second thing we might notice, sin is a violation of God's law, and it must be dealt with on that basis. It cannot be overlooked. If there's anything that civil society ought to have learned over the centuries, it should be that. Even in the laws of our land, if one overlooks penalties to the law, the law thus has no force behind it. The law, in fact, is not that which it ought to be if one does not penalize those who violate it. Might we notice God has a law. He did in the Old Testament. He does in the New. We've learned that sin is still real. In His justice, God cannot overlook sin. It must be punished. It must be dealt with. Just as surely as that, what then is the step that's next? If we've learned that God will not overlook sin, the only next available option is sin must be forgiven. It must be remitted in the words that so often appear in the Scriptures. In fact, is that not what's presented to us in texts such as Hebrews 10, verses 17 and 18? There, that New Testament writer said, For their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Then he goes on to say in verse 18, in the wonder of that power, for in the remission of these things, there's that word remission. Notice that sins are not something that God will just overlook, even though they exist. If they are not remitted, they are still a problem. That word remission, what does it mean? It means to forgive, to set aside as though it never happened. That is to say, there's some means by which a restitution, an agreement to the matter of restitution is made, thus to cover it in the sense that it never would have occurred. That's what is involved in remission. I suppose the obvious question, how does one then approach that remission? How is it obtained? Hebrews 9.22 reminds us, without the shedding of blood is no remission. Now, that begins to take us back to the Old Testament, doesn't it? There was the shedding of blood in the Old Testament, wasn't there? In fact, the blood flowed from that altar at the tabernacle and the temple, gutter deep. No telling how many oxen and sheep and goats in a year's time were slaughtered, and their blood flowed forth from that altar. But yet, that leads us to note this. Hebrews 10, verses 1 and 4 still says, that the blood of bulls and goats, it's not possible for that to take away sin. It was not possible. All that blood that flowed, all of those sacrifices that were made, 
hinted to a fuller and more perfect reality that was one day to come. We're beginning to see more about the grace of God. God gave them commandments that pointed forward to a more complete and fuller time. But the shedding of, those, of the blood of those animals, it was not possible for it to take away sin. That does bring us, I suppose, to the Galatian letter. What about the taking away of our sin today? The graciousness of God toward that end and the matter of righteousness to which it relates. I would ask you to notice with me in verse number 15, Galatians chapter 2. We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles. From verses 15 to 21 of this chapter, Paul addresses the thought and the topic of righteousness before God, and he does so in a global way. He doesn't merely address those that would be Jews. He doesn't merely address those that would be Gentiles. The message is for all of us. In that fashion and in that way, he begins by saying, Verse number 16. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. As verse 21 was read just a minute ago, it will be the capstone verse to our study this morning. As Paul arrives at the answer, notice that the word grace occurs in that verse. We are directly discussing points related to the grace of God. That word, as I mentioned earlier, is charis, C-H-A-R-I-S. And as that word, it simply means this, the unmerited favor or the undeserved loving kindness of one toward another. And for us in the Bible, it is that of God directed toward us, isn't it? The unmerited or undeserved favor of God toward the human family. That includes you and it includes me. And to think about that idea, let's now revisit that thought we read in verse 16. And learn our first lesson of our study this morning. If justification does not occur by Old Testament animal sacrifices, how does it occur? Verse 16 had already told us. Let's read that portion of that verse again. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Here is Paul's first point. That's the ultimate answer to the matter today. How can one be right before God? It begins by appreciating the faith available through Christ. I've listed some verses for your consideration that, in fact, identify the same point. In Romans 3, verses 26 and 28, Paul, in fact, stated powerfully to the Roman brethren, justification by faith. That is the cardinal teaching of the Roman letter, isn't it? In fact, much of the New Testament, in fact. That idea is also uttered for us in Acts 13, verses 38 and 39. Isn't it still a marvelous thing to remember? One of those first lessons in which Paul and Barnabas shared on that first missionary journey. He, in fact, pointed out to them that you could not be justified by the things prior to this, but by this man, referring to Jesus, you can be justified from all things that you could not be justified by, the law of Moses. 
we learn something interesting in a statement like that one concerning the old law of Moses. Was it God's law? Absolutely. Was it essential for those Jews, the Hebrew nation, if you will, to pursue it? Absolutely. In fact, when they deviated from it, they met with great disfavor on the part of God. However, could it ultimately present the matter of justification before God? It could not. To be just means to stand approved. To consider one with sin redeemed, sin remitted, sins forgiven. The Old Testament could not allow that to occur. It did not have the infrastructure. The blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. Today, does it not shine a brilliant light then on the favor that God has showed to us? Salvation through the faith of Christ. Paul had to teach the Galatians that point, for there were some false teachers amongst them who were telling them, you still need to hold true to the law of Moses. You still need to offer a degree of consideration to circumcision. Paul had his job cut out for him to convince them, no, you do not. The sacrifice that Christ offered is completely sufficient, adequate, and authoritative to the forgiveness of sin. And those who will in fact subscribe to that New Testament gospel will have their sins taken away and they can stand justified before the God of heaven. It is no light matter thus to notice some of the false teachings that are so prevalent in our way of life today. There are some who are of the opinion to think all that's necessary to be pleasing to God, just live a good life. You be a good neighbor, help out a friend in need. And when life's over, God will consider that enough. Friend, that is not true. That is not true. Notice again the text. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law. If it was not possible for a person to be justified, pursuing the works of the law of Moses, will it be possible today for a person to be justified in any kind of works based only on those works? It is not possible. One could give his or her life to feeding the hungry, to visiting the prisons, to providing coats for those that are cold, to being a stranger to those in need. And at the day of judgment, if the blood of Christ is not be, had, has not been used to cleanse sin, that person will be lost. It's that simple. Because good works do not forgive sins. Good works by themselves do not forgive sin. The Galatians needed to learn that. And the world today still needs to learn that lesson, doesn't it? But some other thoughts on that same screen that I've listed for your consideration... Good intentions, no matter how good they may be, no matter how worthwhile they may appear, by themselves they do not forgive sin. I might submit to you that that is still one of the major misunderstandings religiously of the world, isn't it? I suppose that many individuals have a sense that they don't live in the way they should before a perfect God. They're aware of the fact that they do or say or think things that are improper. And they certainly know that if they have any knowledge of the Bible, that their life doesn't match it perfectly. 
But they nonetheless seem to think that they are good enough to merit God's favor toward them despite their sin. Therein is the major problem. According to the Bible, what does merit God's favor toward one? Is it His own works? Be they good? Is it His intentions? Is it His nobility in any way whatsoever? Paul's answer here, verse 16, is no. Let's notice again, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. If we are not attached to the Savior, if one is not thus living beneath the friendly confines of the protective umbrella of His blood, no matter what the intentions of the person's life may be, no matter what the person may or may not have otherwise done, he's lost. He has not availed himself of God's offer of grace toward that end. That's a powerful lesson, isn't it? But not only is that lesson worthwhile, that in fact takes us directly to the very subject of God's grace. Notice verse number 21. I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. We noted a moment ago, God's grace, that unmerited or undeserved loving kindness of God toward you and me, that does remind us so very wonderfully that, in fact, we are saved by God's grace. I say that because Paul did in Romans 3.24, and he did again in Titus 3 verse 7, recognizing that it's only by that magnificent offer of God toward us when we violated God's law and thus were sinners, did we stand in any position of negotiation with Him? Were we in any position whereby we could bargain for our salvation? We were not. We were His enemy. We were in fact distanced from Him. Therein is the point of His grace, isn't it? When we were so removed from Him, He offered us the opportunity to be saved. In fact, Paul makes note of that on this very position. I do not frustrate the grace of God. Isn't it true according to that very next statement? The grace of God goes hand in hand with righteousness. That's what Paul said. There is no way for you or me or anyone else to appear righteous before God apart from the offer of God's grace. Doesn't that address the point we just raised? It doesn't matter about intentions. It doesn't matter about good works for good work's sake alone. All that's required, of course, is an attachment by virtue of God's grace to the offer He made in verse 16. Again, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. It's not possible for anyone then to claim justification by the law of Moses or any other system of law alone. It requires the offer of God's grace and the salvation attached through Christ's death. That given point in verse number 21 leads us to see again Paul's statement in Ephesians 2.8. For by grace are ye saved through faith. Grace through faith. It takes both sides of that coin. God's grace is His free offer to us. Faith is our response to God's offer. God's grace has appeared to all men, we learn in Titus 2.11. But all men will not receive it. All men don't respond to it. 
Some men, in fact, reject it. That, in fact, leads us to the very last point that we'll notice in our lesson this morning. The third lesson from verse number 21, the interesting fact of frustration and the fact of Christ is dead in vain. Let's pose it in this way. If it were possible for anybody in any way to appear righteous before God in any means other than through Christ's death, then Christ died for no reason. For if one could do it, everyone else can do it too. And that's Paul's point. He even used the pronoun I. He said, I do not frustrate the grace of God. And he drove home that point. If righteousness is obtainable in any way other than through Christ's death, then Christ need not have died. That leads us to that dramatic lesson of frustration. Have you pondered over verse 21 perhaps at some point in the past? What does it mean to frustrate God's grace? Does that mean that you or I in some way can in fact thwart God's plan for grace? Can we in some way make it less than powerful? Can we cause it to be less than what God would have it to be? That would seem to pose a very hard question, doesn't it? For it would seem to say that it gives you and I power over God. Suffice it to say that the word itself, I think, clears up any misunderstanding. That word frustrate simply comes from a word that means to regard as nothing, to set aside, or to reject. What Paul was thus saying is, I will not reject God's offer of grace. I will not, in fact, regard as nothing the offer of God's grace. It should almost bring a tear to our eye, it seems, when we think about those who run roughshod over God's grace. He offers them the opportunity for salvation and they reject it. They say, I don't need it. I don't want it. I'll have nothing to do with it. Paul said, I, for one, do not frustrate the grace of God. Notice, are there ways today that you and I can more clearly think of examples wherein the Bible teaches we might frustrate God's grace? Now, we might know that doesn't take away the fact God's grace is extended to us. To say that we treat it or regard it as nothing is on our response. Wouldn't it be awful to stand in the day of judgment and have God to say, I offered you the grace, but you frustrated it. You set it aside. You treated it trivially as nothing. Well, the Bible, in fact, says some things that ought to cause us to think often about that. Might we start in Matthew 7 in the Sermon on the Mount? There are those to whom the Lord, in fact, there said, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. And that despite the fact that one verse earlier they had called him Lord, Lord. Noting then that they were aware to some extent of the position he occupied, but they had never done what was necessary to formalize and make a relationship with him. How does that relate to this? They obviously had frustrated the grace of God by setting it aside, treating it lightly. Is it true that there are vast many today who are still doing that? Maybe another example. This would take it from 2 Peter 2 verse 20. 
That first one we thus had discussed had to do with those that had never become a Christian. For notice the Lord said he had never known them. So despite that offer of the plan of salvation, what one needed to do in order to become a member of the blood-bought body of Christ, these had never subscribed to it. Alien sinners sometimes is the word that we use to describe them, isn't it? But that isn't the only category. What about another category? Taken from 2 Peter 2, verses 18 to 22. Highlighting especially verse 20. As Peter made discussion of those who had escaped the pollutions of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, he said they were entangled again, so much so that the latter end with them is worse than the first. Now they were lost first before they knew the Savior. And now their latter end is even worse. We see others now who are frustrating the grace of God. Not that God's grace isn't available to them, but the fact that they are choosing to live in a way that's apart from God's offer of grace. And notice the latter end worse than the first. Lost. Separated from God. And how fearful and awful a thought that is. Maybe a third category. To note the amazing vividness of Hebrews 10, verses 25 through 29. Now, on that text, we notice the direction that the author takes, helping us see the obligation and the duty that's ours to, in fact, consider one another to provoke unto love and good works, verse 24. But then, beginning in verse 25 and continuing through verse 29, he describes a group of people not the least of which they who have forsaken the assembly of the saints together. But then he makes this description with respect to them and those in that category. They have trodden underfoot the Son of God and have crucified Him afresh and put Him to an open shame. Do we often think as Christians about the possibility that when we choose to live frustrating the grace of God, it's as though we're driving the nails in the Lord's hand all over again. It's as though we're pounding the crown of thorns on His head again. It's as though we are thrusting the spear in His side again. And notice, that happens when we run roughshod or frustrate God's grace. You see, God's grace is offered unto us, and it's offered in the confines of the New Testament gospel. And it is offered to all, and we would do well and wise to hastily respond to it in loving favor and in joy and in gladness. Because if we frustrate it, Paul will later tell the Galatians in chapter 5 verse 4, you are fallen from grace. If you and I find ourselves in a position like that, having once known it but then fallen from it, we are again lost. We have frustrated the marvelous purpose of His grace. And perhaps we could summarize most of this in just a very few short comments. First of all, God's grace is manifested in Christ. 2 Timothy 2 verse 1. Of that we can make no doubt. But in addition to that point, that righteousness is available only in Christ. I make that statement based on verse 21 of 2 Corinthians 5. He said, For He made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. 
I might point out that so far there's been a couple of prepositional phrases used. And both times it's been in Christ or in Him. Thirdly, you and I can thus frustrate the grace of God if we are not in Him. How does one come to be in Him? And that's not enough to be those who just know of Him or those who are affiliated in some way with Him. There are occasions when we might have discussion with those of our world and they say, well, I'm affiliated with the Church of Christ. There's nothing in the Scriptures that makes any such identification. One is either in it or one is not. How does one be in Christ? The New Testament leaves us not to wonder. We fact and read, we read of these things. We must believe Jesus to be the Son of God. We must repent of our sins. We must confess His name as the only begotten Son of God. And we must be baptized. When those things take place, we are then in Christ. We thus have access to the righteousness made available to us. And we are those who are covered with the blood of Jesus. That's a wonderful episode of God's grace. Today, the question before us is then this, are you currently frustrating God's grace? Are you setting aside, are you treating it as nothing? If you are, let this morning, the morning of December the 7th, 2008, be the morning that that, that changes. For life is too brief, it's too uncertain. You need to make things right with God this very morning. If you're in that alien sinner condition in which to this point you've never come to know the Savior, realize that redemption is only in Christ, Ephesians 1.7. If we could be of assistance in that plan of salvation that I listed earlier, we'd be happy to do it. If you have become a Christian and thus have known God's grace, you've tasted it, Hebrews 6, verses 4 to 6. But to this point you have spewed it back out of your being. Turn back to the Savior. Come back to that first love, and just as we've noted again, He will again cover you with the umbrella of His grace. If we could be of assistance to you by praying on your behalf today, we'd also be honored to do it. But we need you to let us know in a public way while together we stand and while we sing.